please rise for the Old Testament reading, which for this Lord's Day is taken from the book of Job, chapter 13, verses 13 through 19. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. There is a reason why we use the phrase Job's counselors when we speak of people whose well-intended words only add insult to injury. Having spent a week in mourning with their friend Job and having heard his lament in which he curses the day of his birth, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar now seek to comfort their heartbroken friend but they will utterly fail as their misguided words bring only more pain and suffering to Job. And as they attempt to show Job the error of his ways, they instead provoke a defiant outburst of protests, which is the subject of our sermon this morning. We now turn to an extended dialogue or debate that runs all the way from Job chapter 4 through the end of Job chapter 14, 
And indeed, it continues beyond that. And you'll need to take out your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 4. In the first of three cycles of speeches, we will hear from each of Job's friends as well as from Job himself. And context here is critical. In the prologue, chapters 1 and 2 of Job, we met Job. We learned of his great piety as well as that critical fact which underlies all of what follows. Job's trial by ordeal has come about because God directed Satan's attention to Job, a man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and shunned evil. And when Satan posed the idea that Job's piety is self-serving, and that if all the good things God has given to him are taken away, Job will no longer worship God but curse him, Job's ordeal begins in earnest. But when Job's possessions are gone and his children are killed, Job does not curse God. Instead, he praises God. And so Satan tries again. Only this time, Satan wants to attack Job's health. Take away Job's health, Satan reasons, and Job will curse God to his face. And now afflicted with a horrible skin disease, still Job does not curse God. Job is an outcast. He's covered with sores. He's a miserable wretch sitting on the town dunghill. He's lost everything. And all the people who saw him in his misery were surely thinking, what sin did Job commit that brought all of this down upon him? Well, having heard of the disaster that had befallen their friend, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar now set out from their homes to comfort Job. Between the time Job lost everything and the time that his three friends arrived, Job's emotional state has deteriorated greatly. He's reached the point where he curses the day of his own birth. And in that lament we saw last time in Job chapter 3, Job repeatedly asked the question, why did all of these horrible things come to pass? And yet the trigger that set Job off was the arrival of his three friends who, out of their deep respect for Job, sit with him silently throughout this entire week of mourning. But knowing that his friends must be thinking the same as everyone else, what secret sin is there that's brought about this horrible suffering, this horrible ordeal, all the while Job knows that he has done nothing wrong? Now, as we turn to the dialogue that follows, we need to be aware that Job's suffering is viewed from two completely different perspectives. From the very fact of his suffering, Job's friends all infer that Job must have committed some great sin. And in this, they are orthodox in their theology. They know that God is holy. They know that God must punish sin. But in their minds, Job's ordeal is therefore evidence that Job is being punished. And the conclusion is obvious. Why is Job being punished? Because Job has sinned. But from Job's perspective, the issue is completely different. Since Job is innocent, despite the opinion of his friends, the fact that he's suffering calls into question God's justice. How can God be just if he's punishing the innocent? And that very dilemma explains why Job is not focused on the loss of his possessions and the loss of his family near as much as he's focused on the loss of his relationship with God. How can God treat Job like an enemy when Job has done nothing wrong? And so Job's lament in Job 3 ends this 
period of silence and provokes these three cycles of speeches from his friends to which Job responds. Now the opening of these cycles, cycle one, are the longest speeches. They're the most carefully reasoned. We'll cover them this morning. The second cycle of speeches in Job 15 to 21 are somewhat shorter, while the third cycle of speeches in Job 22 to 26 are the shortest and the most intense. And so as the debates and the speeches become more heated, the four men seem to run out of steam toward the end. The dialogue begins with Job's three friends offering him pastoral advice. But the speeches quickly take on the air of a courtroom drama, as we will see, as though Job were on trial and as though his friends assumed the role of a council of elders who are now passing judgment on their friend. But Job refuses to agree with their verdicts. And yet his friends will not budge from their view that Job is guilty and has brought all this to pass and that Job's plight is indicative of some secret sin. Now in cycle one, round one, we have the speech from Eliphaz the Tamanite and Job's response. Now Eliphaz is the oldest of Job's three friends and he's given the opportunity to speak first in all three cycles of speeches. And the presumption is in the ancient world that he's the oldest, so he's also the wisest. Now initially, Eliphaz presents what appears to be the orthodox view of sin, that righteous behavior brings forth blessing and sinful behavior brings forth curse. But Eliphaz also believes that there's a direct connection between the degree of someone's sin and the amount of suffering that they must endure. And this can be seen as we pick up with this series of dialogues in Job chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, as the dialogue now begins. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, Job, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you've instructed many, how you've strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You've strengthened faltering knees. And so having heard Job's lament, Eliphaz just simply cannot keep his opinion to himself. Now he begins with a reference to Job's esteemed reputation, and in doing so he insinuates that Job does not practice the things that he has been preaching to others. And then in verses 5 through 9, Eliphaz contends that Job's troubles are the result of some secret sin. But now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your conference, your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger they perish. From Eliphaz's perspective, there can be only one reason why Job is suffering. Suffering is the consequence of sin. Those who plow evil are going to reap the reward, and the implication is inescapable. Job must have sown to evil, or else Job wouldn't be suffering. But if anything, knowing the whole story as we do, this shows us the folly of trying to understand the ways of God and the sufferings of others through our own distorted and limited observations of the world around us. Without the knowledge of the decision, the prior decision of the heavenly court that we know, the reader knows from the prologue of the story, 
Eliphaz, who doesn't know that, is never going to understand Job's situation. And therefore, Eliphaz's advice to Job is utterly self-centered. Now, Eliphaz even claims that his observation is confirmed by a dream, special revelation. And so in Job 4, verses 12 through 15, we hear this. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. Now, Eliphaz not only has his experience that sowing to evil brings calamity, but now he appeals to special revelation. God told me that this is true. And from Eliphaz's very distorted perspective, Job's lament therefore calls into question God's goodness and God's providence. Job ought to be looking at his own conduct for an explanation. But you know, Job never questioned God's conduct. Rather, Job laments his own miserable condition, and he wishes he were dead, and these are two completely different things. Now, in Job 5, verse 1, Eliphaz offers Job a solution to his problem. Job must repent of his sins. Says Eliphaz, call if you will, but who will answer you? The implication is that Job's lament is not heard because he's not repented. But Eliphaz isn't done. To which of the holy ones will you turn? Since Job is in sin, he can't count on any help from any divine messengers. But watch now, as we'll see in the coming weeks, as the dialogue unfolds and Job begins to defend himself. Ever so slowly, Job begins to raise this idea of a mediator or a go-between who will make peace with God on his behalf. But Job never could have envisioned that God would take to himself a true human nature in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the only true mediator between God and men. But such a mediator is God's answer to the question of the suffering of the righteous. It is the answer to the anguish we all feel in the midst of suffering. Jesus Christ, the only true mediator between God and humanity, is not only truly God, he is also, as we've seen, the man of sorrows. Now, in Job 5, verses 19 to 16, Eliphaz gives a very eloquent explanation of God's providence. God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be recounted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in daytime. At noon they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He, he saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. But you know, given Eliphaz's faulty understanding of Job's situation and his condescending attitude towards Job, it's very difficult for Job to accept any of these wonderful words. In what follows, Eliphaz leaves no room whatsoever for the suffering of the righteous, other than to see it as the just deserts of sowing to evil. Eliphaz sadly echoes the unbiblical theology of many a Pentecostal faith healer. Do the right thing, say the right words, and everything will be fine. And if you're not healed, 
Why are you not healed? Is it the evangelist's fault? Is it Eliphaz's fault? No. Whose fault is it? It's your fault. And why is it your fault? You must have some unconfessed sin in your life. And obviously, so must Job. Now, as Eliphaz concludes his soliloquy, he exhorts the suffering Job to repent and submit to God. Now, once chastened, Eliphaz reasons, God will then restore Job. And listen to the words of Eliphaz from Job chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, and put yourself in Job's place. How would these words sound to you in the midst of suffering? Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue you, and seven no harm will befall you. In famine he will ransom you from death, and in battle from the stroke of the sword. You will be protected from the lash of the tongue, and need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine, and need not fear the beasts of the earth. You'll know that your children will be many, and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like she's gathered in season. And so Eliphaz concludes by saying to Job, look, we've examined all this, and it's true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. In other words, take your lumps, and then God will restore you. Now the problem is not so much with Eliphaz's theology as much as with his ineptness as a counselor. The sufferer does not need to be told, take your suffering like a man, any more than someone who's lost an unbelieving relative needs to hear a lecture on reprobation. Pull yourself together doesn't comfort someone in the midst of a trial or in grief or in despair. Such advice is actually cruel. While Eliphaz's logic is impeccable, he's limited God's purpose in suffering to the principle that everything you reap comes from what you sow. But this is manifestly untrue for Job. Job is not sown evil. Job may very well agree with Eliphaz's speech, and he may very well agree with his focus on God's power and goodness. The problem is that's not the issue. Given Eliphaz's very limited perspective and his Pentecostal claim to divine revelation, you know, God told me this was true about you. He misses the mark, and his words reflect an astonishing degree of self-righteousness. Now, since the situation Eliphaz describes here doesn't apply to Job, the last thing Job needs from Eliphaz is a lecture that if Job would only do what Eliphaz tells him to do and repent of his sin, everything's going to be okay. But the reader knows what Eliphaz does not and what Job is already starting to grasp. Job's horrible state is not the result of divine judgment upon past sin. God may indeed have some purpose in Job's ordeal, a purpose that completely transcends Eliphaz's preconceived ideas about what God can or cannot do. And no trite little speech about sowing and reaping can comfort Job after what he's endured. Job is still groping for an answer, but he knows Eliphaz doesn't have it. And Job can't take any more. And so in Job chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 2, he responds to his friend. Eliphaz's words don't bring Job comfort. Instead, they bring forth an emotional outburst and a protest from Job against this insinuation that there's some hidden sin in his life that's caused God to punish him. Now, knowing that he's done nothing wrong, 
Job's reaction is to cry out in terror because he feels like God has become his enemy. And so in Job 6, 2 through 4, we hear these haunting words from Job. If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. The Hebrew text quite literally speaks of God's forces arrayed in a battle array against Job. The terror, the thought of it, the terror of God bringing his army against Job drives him and brings anguish to his heart. But in Job 6.14, Job now turns directly to his counselor, Eliphaz. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow and darken by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that cease to flow in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Job is not going to let this go. Job is going to defend himself. And so as he points out in 625 and following, how painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat the words of a despairing man as wind? Would you even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend? But now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent and do not be unjust. Reconsider for my integrity is at sake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? Job has done nothing wrong. He has not spoken evil nor done evil. And he tells Eliphaz, look, relent, back off. My integrity is at stake. But in Job 7, the sufferer now has had it with Eliphaz and he now pours out his heart to the Almighty. His friends have no answer. They do not understand his plight. And so it's only natural for Job to look anew to his creator, his friend, and his redeemer for an answer. And so in Job 7, 1 and following, Job cries out, Does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man? Like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages? So have I been allotted months of futility, and nights of misery have been assigned to me? When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on, and I toss till dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. Now, knowing that he has done nothing wrong, Job cries out for an answer. And so in Job 7.11 we read, Therefore I will not keep silence. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Now as Francis Anderson in his famous little commentary on Job reminds us, Job makes his way to God with prayers that are sobs. Narrow and inhuman, Anderson reminds us, is the religion that bans weeping from the vocabulary of prayer. And that's exactly what Job is doing here. Job, in his praying, is weeping. He is pouring out his heart to God. And Job returns to this theme again in verses 19 through 23 of Job 7. Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. Beloved, Job wants to know why. 
He knows there is no secret sin. Job wants to know what the reader already knows, that there's a purpose behind all of this. And Job's suffering does not have to do with some secret sin. Job's suffering does not have to do with some divine vendetta against him. Job knows that he is a sinner. But what troubles him is, it appears as though God has not forgiven him. And that brings us to cycle one, round two, and the speech from Bildad and Job's response. Now, Bildad picks right up where Eliphaz leaves off. Utterly insensitive to Job's lament and his defense against Eliphaz's accusation, Bildad doggedly returns to that theme of divine justice, even calling Job a windbag in Job 8.2. How long will you say such things? Your words are like a blustering wind. Now for Bildad, the issue is very straightforward. There are two kinds of people. There are people who are blameless and there are people who are wicked. And God reveals who is who through blessing and through curse. So it's obvious which one is Job. And so in verses 3 through 7, Bildad makes his case. Notice the sleight of hand here, though. Instead of accusing Job of a secret sin, he accuses Job's children of sinning. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Oh, that's comforting. God killed my children because they sinned. But if you look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble, as prosperous as your future will be. Now these words must have cut Job to the quick, since as we know, Job regularly made burnt offerings to God on behalf of his children. Bildad's words are not only cruel, they're dead wrong. And now notice how his speech ends. Job's old illness is not yet proved fatal. He still has time to repent. So he can plead with God now to spare his life and maybe he'll be restored to even greater than he was before. And perhaps aware as his words come to an end that his words sting rather than help, Bildad offers a very weak attempt in Job 8 verses 20 to 22 to offer, Job's word, uh, to offer Job words of cheer. But listen to how these words must have bitten as well. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. The problem is that God does not reject the blameless, yet God has apparently rejected Job. Therefore, Job must not be blameless. And so the implication is obvious. Job has to repent of whatever it is that he's committed and God will restore him. Now, despite his lowly state, Job cannot let these words go by without a response. And so in chapter 9, Job addresses Bildad directly, while in chapter 10, Job pours out his heart before God. And notice how the dialogue with his friends now takes on the shape more and more of a courtroom drama. Even though Job endorses his friend's main theme, that God is just, before returning to reply to Bildad's argument. For Job, even God now seems like a prosecutor. And thus in Job 9.2, Job agrees with the essence of Bildad's speech before lamenting the futility of trying to argue a case before God. Indeed, I know that this is true, says Job, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? 
There's no way, Job's saying, for a sinful creature to win an argument with God. As we see in verse 9, listen to this. Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Job knows that God does whatsoever pleases him, and Job knows he can do nothing to stay God's hand. And so beginning in verse 25 of chapter 9, Job now starts to turn in on himself again and to see his situation as a sign of God's condemnation. My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. I still dread all my sufferings, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I wash myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that my clothes would detest me. He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. And listen to these amazing words. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror wouldn't frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands, I cannot. Even if he does, as Bildad suggests, Job knows that he can't stay God's will. What Job needs is a mediator, someone to arbitrate his case for him to the holy God on his behalf. What Job needs is the intercession of Jesus Christ, something that he already has but doesn't yet understand. Now in Job 10, verses 1-7, through 7, without even breaking stride, Job turns from debate to a prayer, demanding a hearing before the heavenly court. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands, while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal, or your years like those of a man, that you must search out my faults and probe after my sin, though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand? It's an amazing verse, amazing comment. In verses 14 to 17, Job cries out even more, If I sinned, you would be watching me and would not let my offenses go unpunished. If I'm guilty, woe to me. Even if I'm innocent, I can't lift up my head, for I'm full of shame and drowned in my affliction. If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. 
You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. If God is indeed all good and all powerful, why have things turned out like they have? And Job comes to the essence of his ordeal in verses 18 through 22 of chapter 10. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so that I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night, of deep shadow and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Even as Job now begins to sink into the depths of despair, notice what's happening. He's now crying out to God for deliverance. And this brings us then to cycle one, round three, the speech from Zophar, the Namathite, and Job's response to what are certainly the most difficult and cruel words yet. Now, Job's response to Eliphaz and Bildad was to protest their charges and proclaim his innocence. And Zophar has been listening to all of this and now applies this principle of divine justice with a vengeance in verses 1 through 6 of Job 11. Listen to these words. Then Zophar the Namathite replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, My beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides, Job. Know this, God has even forgiven some of your sin. And I, the idea is it could be a whole lot worse, Job, than it is. Now, in Zophar's estimation, Job refuses to see the obvious. Even if Job were granted what he wants, an open debate with God, God's justice would consume Job immediately. Job is an exaggerator. He's an impatient man. But Zophar has missed the point completely, and he now mocks his friend. What Zophar cannot grasp is that Job is bewildered. His outbursts aren't self-justification, they're heartbreak. It's a heartfelt lament. But in Zophar's theory, divine justice allows no room whatsoever for a sincere, heartfelt lament of a sufferer like Job. And notice how Zophar's logic now gives way to another series of self-righteous pronouncements. According to Zophar, all Job needs to do is get his act together, repent of his sin, and then God will restore him. And so in verses 13 through 20, we read this from Zophar to Job. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as the water's gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday. Darkness will become like morning. It's starting to sound like a Hallmark card. You will be secure because there's hope. You'll look around you and take your rest in safety. You'll lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. 
And so here it is. Job's friends have had their say. Job is suffering. Therefore, Job must have sinned. His horrible plight is nothing but the fruit of divine justice. And yet, despite all these self-righteous lectures, Job has not budged one bit. He's not going to confess some sin he's not committed. He submits to the will and power of God. That's not the issue. But what is the issue is Job cannot understand why God has put him through all this since he's done nothing wrong. He demands a trial, even though he knows that God can bring an overwhelming case against him. And so in chapters 12 through 14, we find one of the longest speeches in the book as Job not only dismisses out of hand the arrogant criticism of his friends, but as he responds to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, we begin to see a glimmer of hope and a longing for a mediator who will stand between Job and the Holy One so as to make peace. And so in chapter 12, verses 2 to 6, Job now responds to his friends with a fair bit of scorn. Certainly they have deserved this and more. Doubtless you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But have I talked the mind as well as you? Am I not inferior to you? Who does not know all these things? I have become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called upon God and he answered. A mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune, as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of marauders are undisturbed, and all those who provoke God are secure. And listen to this line. Those who carry their God in their hands. The theories of Job's friends cannot explain the reality of his situation. They have reduced God to something or someone they can control. But from Job 12, verses 13 and following, it's clear that Job realizes that God cannot be managed. To God, says Job, belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. The man he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and victory. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and makes fools of judges. Are you listening, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar? He takes off the shackles put on kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows men long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of elders. Job has just made it very clear his friends do not understand. But Job's not done. In chapter 13, verses 13 through 19, Job now utters what amounts to a confession of faith. And this, of course, is our Old Testament lesson. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. 
With this defiant protest, a corner has been turned. Job now wants to speak in his defense. He will plead his case no matter what the result. He knows that even if Yahweh strike him dead, he's going to be vindicated in the end. And with these words, amazingly, Job points us ahead to Jesus Christ, who prayed a very similar prayer in Gethsemane, as we read in our New Testament lesson. It was Jesus who cried out, My soul soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It was Jesus who fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. My Father, if it is not permissible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus knew that in dying, he too would be vindicated. Jesus must drink the cup of wrath for salvation to come to God's people, including to Job as the greater Job. Jesus is willing to be slain knowing that he will be vindicated in the end. But sadly, after starting to come to faith, Job now in chapter 14 falls back into that horrible period of suffering. Having considered this for a moment, Job returns to the theme of sin. And so in chapter 14, verse 1, Job reminds us, man born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shadow he does not endure. Do you fix your eyes on such a one? Will you bring him before you for judgment? Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. That is except God, of course. And clearly, Job is aware now of human sin. He is aware that no one can do anything to save themselves. They must have a mediator to save them. And so he continues in verses 5 through 6. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he's put in his time like a hired man. But hope is still there flickering in Job's heart because as you read in verse 13, If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? Yes, because Job knows his Redeemer lives. All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag, but you will cover my sin. Job is looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. But the dialogue is not over, and sadly, Job's suffering again erodes his hope. And so he falls back into lament in the verses that conclude this chapter. Beginning at verse 18, As a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock has moved from its place, As water wears away stones and torments wash away the soil, so you destroy man's hope. You overpower him once for all and he's gone. You change his countenance and send him away. If his sons are honored, he does not know it. If they're brought low, he does not see it. He feels but the pain of his own body and mourns for himself. And so cycle one is over. The dialogue between Job and his friends has two rounds to go before Elihu speaks And then Job finally gets his answer when God speaks to him from the midst of a whirlwind. But the light is beginning to dawn. Job seeks a mediator. 
He knows that God will take his sins away. And he knows that in the end, he will be vindicated. Amen.